0: Survey and claim your credit. There. this CE educational session have declared no relationships with a commercial interest organization, and there is no conflict of interest attached to this learning activity. For successful completion of this, learners must attend the complete activity for credit. No partial credit will be available. And so, once again, uh, Dr. Lee and any of the planning committee, we don't have any disclosures.
1: So if we will. I will let Kyle Powers, our
0: EMS outreach, come out and hit, or come down and introduce Dr. Lee.
1: Okay, thanks, Lauren. I'm taking this off for just a moment. Good morning, everybody. Again, my name is Kyle Powers, and I have the pleasure of working alongside Dr. Lee and Dr. Stani with our the rest of our neurointerventional team. Um, and also serve as Regional Outreach Coordinator for Neurosciences. Uh, this is something we have been looking forward to for some time. We, uh, we formed the Regional Stroke Committee back last year and certainly looked at opportunities of education and kind of wanted to get an understanding of what the region wanted. Um, and a topic that continues to come up across the region, both in the pre-hospital environment as well as the ED, um, is the identification of posterior strokes. Uh, we all know that they can be very, very tricky. Um, And one of the first asks of us was that we do um, a posterior stroke education opportunity. So here we are today. Um, Many of you have had the opportunity to interact with Dr. Lee. I have certainly had the pleasure of of working alongside him, and I've had the opportunity to introduce him a couple of times. And certainly, uh, you know, I've, I've been very fortunate throughout my career to work in different places but have never... Uh, never worked alongside an incredible leader to the caliber of Dr. Lee. And so we're very fortunate to have him here at our institution, and uh, without further ado, we'll turn it over to Dr. Lee. Thank you, sir.
0: Thank you. Thanks for the kind words. Always. Um, Thank you so very much for this opportunity to share with you about uh, posterior circulation strokes. I really didn't know what to uh, title this talk. Initially, uh, I wanted to talk about is this kind of like the mullet of of cerebrovascular disease you know business in the front party in the back and so we're talking about posterior circulation party in the back uh, but more seriously this has been a topic that's been a request from our EMS colleagues and you know they are the frontline clinicians that are are evaluating uh, our patients who come in with acute neurologic symptoms and the goal is What are some potential tips and tricks of of, uh, how do we help them in evaluating uh, these posterior circulation strokes that has been somewhat uh, amorphous at times. Our objectives today really are to number one, understand uh, why there has been such a bias towards anterior circulation stroke symptomatology versus posterior circulation strokes. Second thing that we want to learn are some maybe some of the signs and symptoms of posterior circulation strokes that would be helpful for evaluation of our patients. And thirdly, uh, we get to that patient that's dizzy. And the question is how do we differentiate that dizzy patient that could be potentially a peripheral cause, such as vestibular neuronitis, so a nerve problem, versus a central cause, such as ischemic stroke in, in the brain stem or cerebellum? And so we'll be talking about the HINTS exam as a potential uh, uh, a form of uh, identifying people with uh, either vestibular neuronitis versus uh, posterior circulation strokes. <laughs> At baseline, uh, we know a stroke is a very devastating disorder. Uh, Annually, uh, currently, if you go up to probably present day, we're getting close to 800,000 strokes a year. Every 40 seconds, someone's having a stroke. And we know that uh, there's two major flavors of uh, strokes. There's an ischemic stroke, which is a a blockage of a blood vessel where there's lack of blood flow to the brain. And there there are hemorrhagic strokes, which make about 13% of all uh, strokes, which are bleeding into or around the brain. And strokes are a major cause of disability in the U.S. and in the world, uh, and a significant cost uh, to our healthcare system. Um, So if you look at the CDC map of a kind of a heat map of where uh, ischemic strokes and hemorrhagic strokes are in the U.S., you can see that Georgia resides in the belt buckle of the stroke belt. Uh, and so it's something that we are very familiar with in regards to uh, taking care of patients with stroke. And when we look specifically at, uh, at Georgia, if you look at where we are, uh, we are also in a, a very high uh, prevalence incidence of a stroke uh, in our, our, our region. So again, ischemic strokes, uh, we talk about uh, in terms of uh, strokes that are caused by blockage of blood vessels, uh, makes about 87% of all strokes. Um, this is where you have two major types of blockages. One can be a thrombotic cause. So imagine you have uh, uh, an inside-to blood vessel blockage due to a, a plaque rupture or end arterial that's being blocked off that causes lack of oxygen uh, to the brain. And then there are the embolic uh, blood clots or plaque that travel from one place to the other. So common causes for uh, uh, embolic strokes would be, for example, a carotid stenosis with plaque rupture, with clot that's formed that goes distally into the middle cerebral artery. Or let's say you have atrial fibrillation that with, due to paroxysmal afib with clot formation in the heart that travels distally to the brain. And so then the question comes up, anterior versus posterior circulation strokes. We know a lot about anterior circulation strokes uh, in terms of we probably hear this term quite often in the ED as well as in our units. So right MCA syndrome. So if you have a blood clot that sits in the right middle cerebral artery, and so if we have an example here, um, do we have, so this is a carotid artery, goes behind the eye, and then you have the ACA, and you have the MCA. Uh, So if you have a clot sitting in the right uh, middle cerebral artery, you may have a situation where you have contralateral face, arm weakness. You may have, if it's a large vessel occlusion, A gaze deviation where the eyes look towards the size of the clot, you may have dysarthria and contralateral sensory changes. If you had a mirror image clot, let's say in the left middle cerebral artery or carotid occlusion that causes that territory to be ischemic, you may have contralateral face and arm weakness. So uh, in terms of left MCA causes right face and arm weakness, the gaze preference or the eyes looking towards that side and you have right sensory loss. And then in terms of left MCA, we typically associate left MCA with aphasia or difficulty with language. And then if you have just an ACA, anterior artery uh, uh, syndrome, you may just have contralateral leg weakness. There, happens, there seems to be a greater awareness of anterior circulation strokes compared to posterior circulation strokes, both in the pre-hospital setting as well as a, the hospital evaluation in RED, why is that? Well, I think we're doing—I don't know if there's such thing as too good of a job—but uh, there has definitely been a push uh, from uh, the American Heart Association and American Stroke Association, especially with the the the, the FAST um, uh, campaign, where if there's facial drooping, if the arm is weak, if there's speech difficulty, T time to call 911. And this has been something that's been going on for several years now. And actually, it has been working very well in terms of uh, putting together, uh, it, putting into the minds of our community as well as our clinicians, uh, our EMS colleagues, as well as our clinicians in the hospital, uh, about signs and symptoms of stroke. The one challenge with this particular uh, campaign is that it is very heavily favored towards anterior circulation. Okay. And so we'll talk about what are the poster circulation uh, type of campaign. When we get to the hospital and we have our, let's say, a stroke code team evaluate our patient and when we do a NIH stroke scale, as well as our nursing staff when we receive our stroke patients and we're doing NIH stroke scales post-TPA or thrombectomy or in just the management of our stroke patients in the ward, we also identify that the vast majority of the components of the NIH stroke scales, again, are more anteriorly, it could be more anterior biased in terms of anterior uh, circulation strokes. There are two components that may uh, be more associated with posterior circulation, which would be the visual field, but again, you can have a pretty large MCA and still have a field cut, uh, as well as ataxia, and so that's really about it in regards to being kind of posterior circulation specific, whereas the other components of the anti-stroke scale can be more... uh, ubiquitous or more anterior circulation-specific. So where have we gone so far? Well, guess what? I think that the American Heart Association as well as the American Stroke Association recognized that the FAST campaign was doing a wonderful job, but we were missing a fifth of our patients because... Uh, it was not uh, capturing those clinical signs and symptoms that may be attributable to a posterior circulation stroke. So that's where we got the BFAST campaign. So what, what did we add? The B stands for balance, where we're going, is there a loss of balance or coordination, headache or dizziness. Wow, that really encompasses potentially more specifically to the posterior circulation. And then they added the E for eyes in terms of blur vision, loss of vision, or even double vision. And diplopia is a very, very important sign in recognition of posterior circulation strokes and very specific and sensitive to that. And so I'm very grateful that our national organizations have recognized by adding this that we're starting to incorporate more uh, posterior circulation signs and symptoms into our community campaigns for identifying strokes. And the goal is we need to be teaching this to our friends and family so that they can recognize strokes beyond just the MCA syndrome of face-arm weakness or speech difficulty or language difficulty uh, uh, but more so that, hey, if they start having uh, double vision, if they're having difficulty with, you know, vertigo and dizziness that came on acutely, you know, these are things that we should be thinking about. Could there be a posterior circulation stroke? So posterior circulation strokes make about 20 to 25% of strokes. Why is that? Well because 20-25% of blood flow goes to the posterior circulation. Uh, the diagnosis of posterior circulation as we talked about uh, can be challenging and that some, sometimes these symptoms can be nonspecific. So if someone's having headache and dizziness that may be attributed to a lot of different things. How many times have we cared for an elderly patient who's on antihypertensive medications and they feel lightheaded and they use the term dizzy? So that term dizziness in itself is, loaded, is a loaded term, right? Uh, in regards to trying to figure out, is it truly the room spinning? Is it uh, lightheadedness? Or is it unsteadiness? And so th- this is the reason why sometimes it has been so challenging for us as clinicians to be able to differentiate posterior circulation uh, stroke symptomatology because sometimes even the, 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 verbs, the, the, the verbiage that we utilize. And then also, as we talked about, current stroke triage systems, again, favor anterior circulation strokes. And then oftentimes, you look at the medical literature, there's a large percentage of people, it's three times more likely that you'll miss a posterior circulation stroke versus the anterior circulation stroke due to these biases. And so again, I'm going to show this picture here, is that we're looking at the vertebral Bowser system, this red area representing the posterior circulation compared to the anterior circulation of the internal carotid artery. So this is actually a cerebral angiogram. And on the far left is the AP view of the left vertebral artery with contrast going into the right vert and to the basilar, into the posterior cerebral arteries. And the, the image on the right represents the lateral view of the posterior circulation. And the posterior circulation, unlike the carotid, uh, which is a, a vessel that comes off of the aortic arch, either brachiocephalic or left common carotid coming off the aortic arch. Going up through a soft tissue, then into the skull, the vertebral posterior circulation is unusual in the sense that the vertebral arteries originate from the subclavian arteries, which are the vessels that come off either off the arch or off the brachiocephalic, and they traverse the bone, the vertebral, the foramina, uh, and so it is encased in bone, and so there is the potential, and this is why. Due to trauma, you may see dissections because of manipulation of the the vertebral artery going through that bone. So you can see where that could occur, especially as they traverse the bony foramina. And then they come together uh, to form the basilar artery. And this is one of the unique nature of the post circulation is that it's the only arterial system where you have two arteries that come together or confluence or join together to form a major artery. There are, also, there are also kind of major variability to this posterior circulation where one vertebral artery may be larger, more often times the left vertebral artery is larger, more often times than the right. And there are individuals who may not actually have two vertebral arteries, where they may have a uh, start off being very uh, con- congenital, very small, or non-existent. So there are different variations of that. And where does this vertebral artery uh, posterior circulation uh, supply? Well, it supplies very important structures of the brain. So I, I would liken the post-circulation to be high-priced real estate. I mean, the most of the brain is pretty eloquent. But the posterior circulation supplies the, the brain stem. As you can see, the medulla, pons, midbrain, which represents the three stories of the brain stem that Sits on top is like the Seattle Tower where you have the thalamus. And then beyond that, you have the occipital lobe, uh, which is more related to your vision. Behind the brainstem, you have the cerebellum, which we know is the cauliflower part of the brain that deals with our balance. So everything up in the anterior circulation territory, guess what? Has to go through the posterior circulation territory as well. And so you get kind of a twofer. Uh, As we talked about, uh, this is, again, high-priced real estate. I would liken it to Manhattan, Paris, downtown Atlanta. Highly populated, highly important. Any small injury will show significant symptoms, signs and symptoms uh, and such. In terms of the posterior circulation, if you had to divide up the posterior circulation as it goes intracranially, so when the vertebral arteries enter the posterior fossa, you have what you may consider a proximal segment that supplies the medulla, the cerebellum, so the vertebral arteries, and you have the posterior inferior cerebral arteries that supply the cerebellum. Then you have the middle portion, which is predominantly the basilar artery, that supplies the pons. And then you have the anterior inferior cerebellar artery and the superior cerebral artery that supplies the cerebellum. And then you have the distal portion of the posterior circulation, predominantly the basilar tip or the top of the basilar, And the posterior cerebral arteries that help supply the temporal occipital cortex, the thalamus, and the midbrain itself. And you can see kind of the the layout in the lateral view of those structures. The typical etiology for posterior circulation strokes most often are still atherosclerotic. So again, pontine uh, uh, strokes due to small perforator branches off the basilar artery uh, causing uh, small pontine strokes. Again, there is still a large percentage of people who have cardioembolic uh, occlusion of the basal artery. And that's where you kind of see the most kind of dramatic uh, strokes that we sometimes see people presenting unresponsive or comatose uh, and such. Other common causes for uh, posterior circulation strokes are dissections that can either be related to trauma, so MVAs with whiplash injury, chiropractic manipulation. I, I, you guys don't realize, but I see a lot of people who present with uh, strokes, with Wallenberg stroke due to a chiropractic uh, manipulation of the neck. Uh, or sometimes can be even spontaneous, where you don't even realize there was no, any kind of uh, foreseen trauma. Some people just by mere turning their head, driving their car out of the, the garage, sometimes have presented with uh, dissections. Now, that doesn't mean you guys should be concerned every time you turn your neck, you're going to have a dissection. I don't want you to fear that but in, in, uh, we do see uh, these dissections that are a common cause for posterior circulation strokes. And the less common things are drug abuse, hypercoagulable states, vasculitis, and also in the posterior circulation we have complex migraines that can present with posterior, posterior circulation symptom, symptomatology. The natural history of posterior circulation strokes are such that uh, they are if you look at uh, a three-month follow-up, Uh, the disability of minor posterior circulation strokes, let's say a lacunar stroke of the posterior circulation in the pons versus an M1 segment in the basal ganglia, you'll find that uh, there is greater disability in the posterior circulation strokes versus people who have anterior circulation strokes. Also if you have a large vessel occlusion, obviously large LVOs like carotid occlusions or M1 segments are quite devastating, but when they occur in the posterior circulation can be very devastating. When you look at basilar artery occlusions, the mortality, natural history of of basilar artery occlusions is about a 95% mortality rate. Uh, And so it's something that we do not want to to miss uh, in the evaluation and management of those type of patients. So what are some of the symptoms that will help you kind of differentiate uh, posterior circulation stroke? And I think there are some easy mnemonics. The first one I want to share with you is the five D's of posterior circulation strokes. Uh, it's pretty simple. So dizziness, diplopia, dysarthria, dysphagia, dystaxia. I mean I, we talk about ataxia but let's start, we put it in a D, we can do kind of European style. Uh, and so this is a, a, a fairly easy kind of 5D mnemonic in regards to being able to recognize uh, things that are, are very potentially common post-circulation symptoms. So dizziness related to it could be a stroke in the in the brain stem or in the cerebellum that causes issue with balance. Diplopia if you have issues where you impact the oculomotor nerve or you know remember there's three uh, cranial nerves that control eye movement three four and six and if you hit any of those you can have change in your vision your your eyes being yoked properly that would cause a skew deviation causing either vertical Uh, more likely than horizontal diplopia. Um, If you impact the medulla or any of the muscle control of swallowing, you're going to get dysarthria and dysphagia. And then again, getting back to impacting any of the cerebellar fibers that go to your balance or sensory can cause dystaxia or ataxia. Let's add more Ds to it. In addition to those five, you can add this conjugate case, just to, again, uh, in regards to what you physically see versus what the patient tells you. Uh, is there dysmetria in terms of finger, nose, finger testing? So if you were to ask finger, nose, finger testing, you may notice that uh, they may have dysmetria where there's oscillation in their fingertip uh, where going to the target. Uh, they have dysesthesia or changes in sensation because, again, the sensory fibers have to go through the brainstem. Dyspepsia in terms of uh, going towards the symptoms of nausea, vomiting, and deficits of cranial nerve and motor. I want to share a little bit of some clinical syndromes that you guys may overhear when we take care of our patients. So in the distal portion of our posterior circulation, uh, two common syndromes that you may hear us talk about is Anton Babinski or Anton syndrome, where if you have, let's say, a blood clot that went to bilateral PCA, and causes bilateral PCA strokes, they may develop bilateral cortical uh, blindness. And when you do an ophthalmologic examination, their eyes are completely fine. Their pupillary function is fine. There's nothing wrong with their retina. There's nothing wrong with their lenses. But they will be making up stuff about what they're seeing. uh, And they're confabulate. They may also have visual hallucinations. Uh, so that is a syndrome. So you may see an elderly person just talking about like, you know, you're, you're looking at them and they're staring off into space and they're like, do you see me? Yeah, I see you. And they're like still looking off into space. And you kind of have to wonder, is this person crazy or do they have something that's neurologically or cortically blind? And when, we, when you first see a patient like this, it's amazing how, how they will actually tell you how they th- uh, see the world when they actually don't. There is a top of the basilar syndrome, where you have clots sitting at the top of the ba- basilar. And you're, you're hyperperfusing the thalamus. And the thalamus, I would liken it to a mini brain inside the brain. So all your, it's a sensory relay station, but it's also where you have uh, awareness. And you can have the top of the basilar can present with somnolence, uh, being like they're going to almost pass out, to uh, having hallucinations, uh, peduncular hallucinations, like. They're seeing vivid colors uh, and uh, and such, uh, and they may have changes in their vision because you're impacting the brain, uh, the midbrain as well, where they may have skew deviation, double vision, and then they also may have other signs. The uh, Collier sign is where they have lid retraction, so when they look up, even more their eyelid retracts more. In the in the cerebellum itself, I mean, sorry, in the the middle portion, you're dealing with more of the. Uh, superior cerebellar artery, the basal artery, the ICA, anterior inferior cerebellar artery. You're impacting the pons. Um, do I ignore that? Yes. Okay, okay. Um, so you can, you can cause, uh, at this, this, I would like to liken this area as you can see cross findings typically. So you may have ipsilateral motor findings, contralateral sensory, or body motor findings, uh, and then if you get if you end up getting the entire anterior pons, you can have what's called a locked-in syndrome, where uh, the most prototypical is actually not a stroke, but people who have central pontineal myolysis, where people literally, they are completely quadriplegic, and they have eye opening. It seems like they're actually uh, you know comatose, but their eyes open, and the only movement they have is uh, eye movement. And that's how they communicate. OK. Sorry. Real quick, technical change. Robbie, that's not on our screen. Are you able to backdoor this one? Mm -hmm. Sorry. Is that on the um, on the main screen or? And I also want to introduce Dr. Tristan Stani. Uh, he's my partner. He's, uh, I have a man crush on the guy. so <laughs> uh, he's, he's been awesome. So, um, and then in terms of uh, when we get to the proximal portion, uh, one syndrome that I, I would like to share with you that you'll probably hear quite a bit is Wallenberg syndrome. Wallenberg syndrome oftentimes is caused by uh, a stroke of the medulla, either due to vert dissection or proximal pica stroke. And the common symptoms are vertical, nausea, vomiting, and this is again, this is probably the syndrome that most uh, EMS folks are worried, concerned about that they don't want to miss. Uh, so they also get ipsilateral facial numbness, they get dysmetria, uh, and they, if you look at their eyes, they have what's called a Horner syndrome. So Horner syndrome is where you have loss of sympathetic fibers, and the the pupil is going to be small. And uh, um, uh, in terms of they also will have contralateral hemisensory loss, so pain and temp. Um, uh, and so there's, again, that concept of cross signs. Uh, and so again, Wallenberg is something that um, we probably see quite a bit within our uh, health system in terms of posterior poster circulation strokes. So uh, common flags that I want the takeaway points for identifying posterior circulation strokes would be if someone has double vision from skewed eye, I mean, that should be a, a, a red flag for posterior circulation strokes. And uh, in terms of nystagmus and incoordination, that likely involves the cerebellum or brainstem. Again, another red flag. If there is a hemianopsia or visual field cut, likely to be, again, you want to invoke posterior circulation. Now, as I mentioned, some MCA syndromes can get the temporal lobe because you know there's common blood supply. Uh, that can also cause a, a, a visual field cut. but Always think of, when you think of uh, 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 heminopia, think of posterior circulation. Any kind of altered mental status that is again, quick. Okay? Uh, it could involve either the, the brainstem in terms of involving the reticular activating system, or the top of the basilar that involves the thalamus. Uh, and so again, the key thing about uh, from our EMS colleagues when they uh, evaluate patients who have altered mental status is, what is the time of onset? And we got that uh, little, little notice again. Um, we'll, we can we can keep going. We can keep going. Hit OK. Hit okay. Um, uh, um, there is no OK on here. Video call. I apologize. So, oh, that one, that okay. Yes, thank you. <laughs> and then, uh, uh, in terms of if there are respiratory failure uh, spontaneously, um, that should again invoke uh, red flags about is there post circulation involved? Uh, is there cross finding? So you have face weakness on one side, contralateral body weakness on the other. That should invoke, uh, could this be a brain stem problem? Predominantly just. Swallowing issues only, that should be a red flag. And again, I think if we go back to the clinical history, what is the acuity of onset? If it occurred very slowly progressive over days to weeks, probably not a posterior circulation stroke. If the person has watched TV and boom, they develop that, all of a sudden acute vertigo out of nowhere, there was no movement, and uh, then they become unresponsive that would make me more concerned about an a, a ischemic stroke in the posterior circulation. So, how do I differentiate dizziness of a posterior circulation from a stroke versus someone who has peripheral vertigo? And that is probably one of the biggest things that uh, people get concerned about. And one exam that one can do is what's called a HINTS exam. is a head impulse testing, ny- nystagmus, and test of skew. And when would you consider this? You're not going to do this for every person that you think has a posterior circulation stroke. You only consider this, HINTS exam, on patients who have had, uh, had symptoms of hours to days of continuous uh, ongoing vertigo and spontaneous nystagmus. So if they're like, I'm dizzy, and if you look at them, they, they have vertig- uh, nystagmus. Nystagmus is eye movement where you have a fast component, almost like a beating uh, eye movement, Uh, that occurs. And if they have that, if they fit this criteria, then the HINTS exam can help differentiate potentially uh, depending on what study you look at. It's almost close to like 96% since 100% specific for uh, differentiating peripheral versus central causes. So the head impulse test. What is a head impulse test? Well, as you're aware, our eyes are yoked, uh, which means that when we look at something both our eyes are looking at a target and as you move our head our, our vestibular system allows our eyes to stay on target despite our head moving. And that's, uh, that's a, the good Lord created us that way. It's a wonderful uh, mechanism, right? In a head impulse test, what we're testing is when you're, you have hold of the individual's head and you have them fixated on a target such as your face, and you tr- quickly turn their head 20 degrees. And again, you're not going to do this on somebody who's complaining of severe neck pain, obviously, because then. You're giving them a second chiropractic manipulation. You don't want to do that. But so you imagine you quickly, kind of gently turn their head to make sure that there's no uh, issue with mobility of their neck, and you quickly turn their head 20 degrees with them fixated on you. If their peripheral nervous system is working properly, then their their eye, their contact to your eye will not change. They'll just kind of look at you continuously. If there is a peripheral nerve problem and you turn their head to one direction, their eye will go there, and they'll have a, what's called a psychotic catch-up, back to catching uh, the target. That is a positive test for a peripheral likely etiology for this. So a positive test represents a peripheral etiology. A central, someone who has a central cause for nystagmus and vertigo will have a normal head impulse test. A negative test is actually what would help you tell it's a peripheral cause. And so you can see in this uh, diagram here, in a person who has a, uh, either a normal neurologic exam or a central cause for vertigo, that if you quickly turn their degree, head 20 degrees, their eyes are still able to quick maintain target. Whereas in someone who has, let's say, uh, vascular neuronitis or peripheral vertigo, when you turn their head quickly, their eyes come off target, and they do a saccadic catch-up where the eyes go back on target. That is what's going to help differentiate a positive test, peripheral vertigo. Negative test could be a normal neurologic exam or a central cause. Nystagmus. There are benign patterns in nystagmus versus more worrisome patterns of nystagmus. Nystagmus is noted by the fast component of the beating of the eye, and if for example, if my eye is beating to my left side quickly, you say it's a left uh, gaze, uh, left nystagmus. Okay, and if it's unidirectional, so if I just look to the left and I have nystagmus, but when I look to the right, it's not there, then it's a unidirectional nystagmus, and that's a little bit more reassuring for peripheral. Whereas if you have changing direction, where you have bidirectional nystagmus, looking to the left or looking to the right causes nystagmus, and if you have um, you know relatives that love to drink uh, and catch them after like seven, eight beers, uh, ask them to look to the re- left and look to the right, they will have a central cause for nystagmus. How many of you guys have seen that ever happen? Yeah. So uh, you, I probably have one beer and I'll do it because I'm, I'm such a uh, teetotaler. Uh, so, so bidirectional nystagmus is worrisome for a central cause. Okay? And then the third component of the HINTS test is the test of skew. So tested skew, so you can see in the picture on the left that the person's eye is, uh, there's a disconjugate gaze. One eye is higher than the other. Well, what if it's really subtle? Well, that's where you can actually do a cover-uncover test where you cover one eye and you look at, ask them to look, fixate on your, on your face. And you cover the other eye, and if you see the eyeball move up or down, that tells you there is a vertical skew. And in addition, the individual will probably tell you, I see double. And there is a, and, and when you ask them, are you seeing the objects on top of each other or side by side, oftentimes when they have a vertical skew, they'll say it's kind of on top of each other um, and such. So how should we rate the testing? So a reassuring hints exam would be that they have a positive uh, head impulse test. So that means that if, they have, if you turn their head and their eyes require a catch-up saccade, that means that they have a peripheral likely etiology. If they have a unidirectional nystagmus, that's likely to be, again, peripheral, and that they have no vertical skew. They must have all three components uh, to be fulfilled to be a reassuring, hints examination. OK? Uh, worrisome would be if they have a negative impulse test when they give you a history of nystagmus plus vertigo, and that they have bidirectional nystagmus. So they look on one side or the other and it causes nystagmus. And then they have an abnormal test of skew. So their eyeballs are up and down. Uh, any one of the three uh, will be worrisome, hence exam, in a person who has continuous hours to days of, of, of vertigo and, uh, uh, and nystagmus. Okay? So let's look at some case reviews. Um, we have a 56-year-old male who presented uh, with a, to the Brazilton ED with a past medical history of hypertension. Uh, and the story was that he developed transient neck pain while watching TV uh, that resolved with subsequent onset of nausea and vomiting and dizziness. Like this. And all he was doing is watching TV. There was nothing else going on. There was no positional component to it. So for example, people you've heard of people who have benign positional vertigo. They have a certain position of head movement that causes it. This was, I'm just watching TV, all of a sudden I felt pain, and then next thing I know, I'm, I'm dizzy, and I'm vomiting. You know, uh, When EMS got to him, they noticed that he may have had a right facial droop and some slurred speech. By the time he was in the Browson ED, uh, the anti-stroke scale just was a 1. Okay, Because of the acuity of uh, symptomatology, uh, they did a stroke workup, and uh, this is a non-contrast CT of the brain on the left. That's arrows pointing to a hyperdense basal artery. And the right side of the screen shows a CTA coronal view. Uh, and what it's pointing to is that you can see the proximal aspect of the basal artery, but the middle and distal component is completely not opacifying This is a patient's CT perfusion. Uh, where we're looking at cerebral blood flow and Tmax. And what this green area is representing is that currently there's no irreversible injured part of the brain, but you have a, a part, the, the posterior circulation, the brainstem and the cerebellum that's lighting up green, saying that it is penumbra or it's brain at risk for potentially dying. Okay. We did a cerebral angiogram, and we noticed that uh, when we did the right subclavian, we see the right vertebral artery, and we see a dissection, dissection right there. And distal filling of the vertebral artery was very poor. When we did the left vertebral artery coming off the subclavian on the left, we see that there is an area uh, that is not opacifying very well at the vertebral basilar junction, representing clot. And there's distal occlusion, uh, mid basilar occlusion. And so you can see in this situation, this person's exam was out of proportion to his angiographic findings. This person actually refused TPA when he, uh, over at Brazelton initially uh, when they shared with him that there's risk for potential intracerebral hemorrhage and whatnot. He, I sometimes wonder if he had the wherewithal to understand what's really truly going on. When he got transferred to us, we shared with him, sir, you have a basal artery occlusion. If untreated, this there's a potential that this could go on to, that you could, you could come uh, to death because of this. He was like, yeah, go do whatever you need. We pulled the blood clot out. And so this is the before and after, where you can see the are already now perfusing the, the posterior circulation. And, and uh, you can see part of the clot. There's still another half of it still behind the uh, video image. Uh, it's literally, uh, I think, 3.5 cm long. Um, and uh, as soon as we pulled the clot out, the ability for him to talk to us changed dramatically. Before, it was almost as if you don't know what his baseline is. We live in North Georgia. you know. I, I, I work with Kyle all day long, and he kind of talks slow sometimes. So you just kind of assume maybe that's his baseline. No, this gentleman was sharp as a tack. Uh, once we pulled that clot out, uh, it was a completely different individual. Uh, and so it talks about, again, how um, the poster circulation can be somewhat uh, difficult to, to pin down. But the key thing is, he developed after sharp pain, he developed sudden onset nausea, vomiting, vertigo. Uh, He had, uh, 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 again, the timing and that presentation should kind of evoke is there a posterior circulation symptom going on? And one of our APPs was able to identify the CT perfusion overnight, Jennifer Swigert, and she got the patient over to, to Gainesville. And so we're very grateful for her uh, just awesome uh, work in getting the patient over to our facility uh, to help this patient out. And I saw this patient in follow-up, 100% normal. And so we're very grateful for that. So this is his follow-up MRI. What could have been in terms of the, this could have been area at risk that if we were unable to open up that blood vessel could have gone on to injury. Uh, and you can see all oh, he has a tiny little cerebellar Diffusion restriction that uh, clinically was insignificant, and he was again back to normal by the next day. Um, so, nih stroke scale zero um, with resolution of symptoms. We have another patient, 71 year old male. Uh, his past medical history is seen for, for hypertension, AFib, uh, CHF, and arthritis. And uh, this gentleman initially lost consciousness at home, and then he developed right sided facial droop, right arm drift, dysarthria, and diplopia. Okay, so what are some flags that you notice? Number one, we noticed that uh, there's the diplopia, right? So that should be one flag that helps differentiate from anterior circulation. The patient's NIH stroke scale was 10. We're getting echo now? Yeah. Okay, okay. Um, and this is the initial patient's uh, NIH stroke scale, and you can see in there he also has limb ataxia, So he does have another finding for posterior circulation here in addition to dysarthria and such. This is his non-contrast CT. Again, he shows a hyperdense basilar artery. Uh, And then uh, in terms of he also has uh, lack of opacification of the basilar artery, the proximal basilar is seen here, and then it goes out. This is his CT perfusion that shows his entire posterior circulation lighting up like a Christmas tree in regards to um, uh, area penumbra without uh, any current uh, core deficits or injured brain. This is his angiogram that shows the right vertebral artery. This is a vertebral basilar junction. And then kind of mid to distal uh, basilar, you can see that there's an occlusion. This is us when we pulled the clot out. And this is what we pulled out uh, of that artery. And uh, by the next day, he had a an stroke scale of one. Uh, he was getting continued uh, medical workup, and likely his etiology was his atrial fibrillation, not on anticoagulation. On day two, post, uh, post-procedure, as Dr. de Cockney was rounding, the patient developed sudden onset, uh, beca- just basically become unresponsive. Even though his eyes were open, he wasn't doing anything. He had pinpoint pupils, very sluggish reactive. He was mute, not moving any of his uh, extremities, not even to painful stimuli. His anti-stroke scale was 25. And again, he we found another hyperdense basilar. Now the, there's less opacification of the basilar already compared to prior. And then unlike before, where his clot was sitting up here, is sitting down even lower. Uh, and uh, this is actually Dr. Stani was able to pull out this clot. And this is, I mean, a tremendous amount of clot that he pulled out. And so he had a, uh, unfortunately, we talk about the odds uh, of clot going to the same distribution. Well, it happened again, you know. In, in this person, uh, there was a 25% uh, chance of clot going to the post-circulation if you have clot. And he had a lot of clot uh, and went to the post-circulation. And in this situation, unfortunately, um, uh, he still got better, but NIH stroke scale 6 versus NIH stroke scale one uh, And um, he did have some uh, diffusion restriction of the cerebellum, a little bit in the brainstem. Uh, but I'm much better off than uh, previously. So again, the goal of uh, today's talk really is to sh- say, what are the five Ds? You guys remember the five Ds? Also, recognizing that strokes are hyperacute. They're, they're not going to meander on for days or, you know, before symptoms develop. And then also, there are certain, if someone has vertigo and nystagmus, now you know the HINTS exam to help kind of hopefully differentiate peripheral causes of vertigo uh, in this versus a central cause. And so, again, thank you so very much for the opportunity uh, to share. Uh, and today actually is our one-year anniversary for our neurointerventional lab being open for uh, uh, thrombectomies. Uh, and I think we did our first stroke on this day last year. Is that correct? And uh, I just want to share that uh, we could not have done that without this team. Uh, You know, it's made up of, you know, our nurses, our techs, our APPs, our neurohospitalists, neurointensivists, neurosurgeons, uh, actually even goes beyond in regards to our STICU uh, colleagues and our ICU colleagues. And then our our therapists help make our patients better. And so it's a a true team effort, so I'm very grateful that uh, I've been able to uh, just be part- participating in this journey together uh, in helping our community. So thank you so very much. Any questions? <laughs> you guys are so kind. Um, any questions, uh, either from this group or in the community online?
1: questions
0: now One second. Okay. And then the cortical blindness a little bit more, like, exactly what's happening kind of thing? Yeah, so the occipital lobe, uh, so the right occipital lobe takes care of the left visual field. Uh, The left occipital takes care of the right visual field. So if you literally take away uh, the visual field for both sides, technically you're cortically blind. But the brain is an interesting organ that it will fill that void uh, with its own information. This is a very interesting test. If you have a red marker or a pen and you're looking at it and you're able to move it laterally, there is actually a blind spot representing your uh, optic nerve. You don't recognize it in normal day, but your brain fills that spot in. But you can actually pinpoint it out by moving it in. And it, I, I would liken that, that same process to when people have a super bilateral occipital strokes, for whatever reason, their brain will start filling in that information with their own uh, visual hallucinations and such. Uh, and so it's a, it's a unique syndrome. They're not doing it on purpose. You know, These aren't people who are trying to make up things for the sake of making things up or people being ornery, uh, but it's a known syndrome that's been known for, uh, for, you know, for a very long time. Any other questions? Is there online questions? Anyone? Nothing has been. Okay, nothing has been. All right. While we're waiting, also I want to make sure that if you're going to claim continuing education credit, you can. uh, Here's a QR code uh, that will help you get uh, CME credit or CE credit um, and such. All right. Well, I appreciate everyone's uh, patience and uh, uh, staying with me for this talk, and hopefully, you'll find it uh, helpful in your care of your patients with posterior circulation strokes. Okay. Uh, yes? Uh, great feedback from online. no
1: further questions, but great. Um, they were giving thanks. Okay. Okay. Awesome.
0: Thank, Thank you, Dr. Lee, for such yeah. yeah. a now. Yeah. Hey man,
1: it's Brandon, how you doing? Hey brother, I'm good. You have something for Dr. William? I thought I heard your distinct voice. <laughs> Listen, I will get him back before the day's over, don't worry. <laughs> what's what's hey, up? Uh, yeah, just one quick, uh, so something that's uh, getting ready to take place over in Carolina, uh, kind of gauge towards post to circulation strokes and EMS being able to uh, identify those in the field. Uh, the short version is what they're trying to do is take, they use the ray scale over in Carolina, uh, they simply want to add a finger-to-nose test, uh, you know, for a taxi to their already existing race scale exam that they're familiar with. I was uh, just curious, Dr. Lee's thoughts on that, you know, kind of, uh, you know, do you think it's uh, going to produce any results?
0: Uh, Yeah, I I think that uh, it's great to be able to do more fine localization. I think the, the key thing also in parallel is to number one, recognize from the clinical history, the, the time of onset. So if something that's acute, you're already thinking vascular, uh the goal is then at that point, whether regardless of whether it's anterior or posterior circulation, uh, it, uh, it prompts you to be able to, in a timely manner, get them to uh, a facility that can uh, evaluate and triage and consider for thrombolytic therapy. And if they are, LVOs of either anterior or posterior circulation to consider mechanical thrombectomy. But I think that having our clinicians in the field being able to do finger nose finger testing, for example, looking for dysmetria, uh, I, I think it, it just, again, uh, creates even more um, a, a validity to. Uh, when you're doing a call-in, especially when our EMS colleagues are able to activate stroke code activation and say, hey, we have a gentleman who just acute onset vertigo and nausea vomiting and has uh, uh, right-sided dysmetria on finger-nose finger testing. If I heard that on uh, on, on uh, our um, uh, eBridge, I would go, wow, that's, that's an amazing assessment in the field. And we're going to make sure we're going to prepare to take care of that person, especially if uh, there's no blood on the CT. We're going to make sure if it's within four and a four-and-a-half-hour window and there's no other contraindications, we're going to give that person TPA. And then we're going to do the imaging. If there's a basilar occlusion, we're going to go take it out. You know, so. So great question. Does
1: any, anyone else online or here in the room have anything in follow-up or any other questions? I got you. I got you. Um, again, thank you, Dr. Lee. Wonderful presentation as always, uh, giving us a little bit of tips of how we can be better at evaluating these posterior circulation strokes. Uh, one thing we hope to do in the future um, is, you know, we've had a lot of educational opportunities. We've we've grown very rapidly um, from becoming thrombectomy capable to now a comprehensive stroke center. So you're you're hearing about these educational opportunities here and there. Um, we certainly plan to do this at least on a quarterly basis moving forward um, and so uh, for those of you online we and here in the room, we've, we've established a neuroeducation email. So the email address is simply neuroeducation at NGHS.com and that is an opportunity for you to respond to that email and Lauren and I monitor that email. Look for topics that people would, you know, topic requests. Um, that's a lot of times how you may register for events. but. I just wanted to share that email and, and the idea of the desire to, to continue to do similar education moving forward. But we really want to deliver what you guys want to see. So, again, thank you all for being a part of today and uh, look forward to the next quarter. Any, any questions or closing thoughts? Okay. Y'all have a great day. Thanks again.
0: Thank you.